Are you ready? Can't the New York Jets can beat anybody in the world, and I think we're gonna win next summer. The New York Jets. I think Jet fans. Jet fans. Jet fans. Burn, very passionate. Burn, Ray, Thank you, all you fans. They got their guy. Darnold falling to the Jets. Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold. That's such an upside. I think Jet fans. Very passionate. Brady sucks. Don't be sucks. Don't Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Ain't Easy Being Green podcast, broadcasting to you live from beautiful, amazing, picturesque Crystal Lake Studios in Putnam Valley, New York. My name is Keith Farrell. As always, we're coming at you on the Elite Sports Radio Network, and I am joined by my colleague and co-host, the number one Jet fan in the state of Texas, Michael Legaris, everybody. What's up, Jet fans? How's it going? There he is. And you know we have the man behind the glass. He's a giant fan, so he's not going to say much today. Nicholas Kronk, the big giant Wookiee. Say hello, Wookiee. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for having me again. We're really fortunate to have a special guest today. Author Bob Letterer just put out a book entitled Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, Keith, and hey, Michael. Thank you very much for the invitation and the chance to talk Jets football with you. And you know, we were talking, chatting a little bit before we got going here, Bob. We know you're a diehard Jet fan. I know you're from Flushing originally, and now you're located, is it in Illinois? Yeah, actually, it's uh, called Skokie, Illinois. It's... Famous for in the 1970s where the Nazis wanted to uh, to march uh, just so they could say they could march through a bunch of uh, Holocaust survivors. That's that's quite a claim to fame. And so you're originally from Flushing. Now I'm assuming Bob, you're also a Met fan. Yes, I'm a Met fan. I'm a I'm a Nick fan, but I don't admit it these days. Who goes? I admit that half-hearted. Yeah, all right. So, you know, Mike, he goes for all the same teams as us, as we were saying that. You know, we're going to get into the book in a second. I just wanted to ask, what was the motivation to write the book? Is this something you've always wanted to do and you kind of had in the back of your mind? Or is this something just recently that came in your mind and you wanted to write? What was the impetus behind writing it? Well, it kind of goes to several several levels. But one is that these guys in 1968 and even in a couple of years before, they were my heroes. There was something very special about Sunday afternoon uh, with Joe Namath leading the Jets at Shea. And there were a number of ups and downs before the 68 season. But I was fascinated by the guys on the team, aside from Joe, because frankly, Joe didn't hog um, the headlines. But that's where the media... Uh, very comfortably went to. They went to Joe, they went to Weep Eubank, they went to Sonny Werblin, who loved to talk as well. And you almost never heard from most of the other players. And so that became a great curiosity to me because I was a young teenager at the time, just learning football for the first time. Uh, and I learned by you know listening to the games uh, with Merle Harmon and Sam DeLuca on WABC and, and watching the games on Sunday afternoon, either with Kurt Gowdy calling the games or Charlie Jones or some of the other really good announcers that NBC had. And this is before the AFL and the NFL had merged. So, I mean, this is in the early 60s you were watching. and Before the leagues actually merged, you were already rooting for the Titans from day one. Yeah, you know, I became a fan uh, one Saturday night in... Uh, Probably September, maybe it was October of 1963. Um, I had no recognition of the Titans for the three horrible years that they existed. Mm. <laughs> but I heard the WHN one night, and I heard Bob Murphy doing this football game. And I'd just become a Met fan that year, and the baseball season was over, so I literally remember saying to myself, well, no baseball games to watch anymore. The Mets are done, so let's see what I can learn about football. And I also decided that night to 
follow basketball and to follow hockey and listened to the game and, and immediately said, okay, I'm going to root for the Jets. Had no idea what that really meant. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, Bob Murphy uh, kind of hooked me in. Oh, yeah. Um, and I started watching and then I started reading. And, you know, in those days in New York, guys, there were seven, eight, nine, ten newspapers. Yeah. Uh, and and we at home got the Herald Tribune, and when it went out of business, my dad ordered the New York Times. My grandmother read the New York Daily News. My uncle read what was called the New York Telegram and Sun, and they went out of business, and he started reading the New York Post. And there were other newspapers back then, and so um, I got to see a lot of different coverage, you know, of, of sports. And I really focused closely on the Jets, and specifically the guys that they were signing. Yeah. Because I knew nothing really about football, about the positions, about what you needed in order to be good at any position. But gradually between 63 and then going into 66 and 67, I began to wonder to myself, boy, you know, Larry Grantham is uh, all AFL every year at linebacker, but could he play in the National Football League? And Don Maynard, boy, he just tears things apart in the AFL. Could he play in the NFL? And I had no idea that Don Maynard had actually played in the NFL in the late 50s for the Giants. And the only guy that it seemed to me immediately clicked that I knew could play in the NFL was Curly Johnson because he was the punter. And a punter is a punter. <laughs> and, and, you know, a place kicker is a place kicker. You know, those guys have, have very, very easily understand the skill sets. Uh, and if they can kick in one league, they can kick in the other. So... Um, so, so, I, so I, I just wondered how good were these other guys, and I, I got really into watching the Jets sign and develop the young talent because they were very committed to signing college players. Sonny Werblin, who was the principal owner, opened his checkbook, and uh, the great coaching staff that they had, which also did the scouting for the team in those days. Uh, most people don't realize it, but on Saturday afternoon, if the Jets were going to play a Sunday afternoon game, Walt Michaels, the defensive coordinator, would go to one part of the Northeast and watch a game, and Cleve Rush would go to another part of the East, and uh, the two other assistant coaches would do that as well. And so oh, they wow. came with scouting reports on players. And, and I think it's important to note that Review Bank, the head coach and general manager, was of course interested in you know, good physical football players with size, but he added another dimension to it that most other teams at the time did not really emphasize, and that was intelligence. And he did that because the Jets were going to run, at least for that time, somewhat complex and sophisticated offensive and defensive systems. Um, and they became difficult to play against for a lot of other teams because they were just different enough um, that they gave you a look that you were not seeing from anybody else in the American Football League. So you had to have smart guys who could really, you know, do the job. In your book, the first part you have, Before There Was a Super Bowl, you do highlight 1958, how the Baltimore Colts beat the New York Giants in sudden death, which put football on the map nationally, which I actually didn't know until I read your book. You being a young man at the time, or a young boy at the time, why... Didn't that game or the New York Giant franchise have you in their fan base as much as when the Jets came on the scene in 1963? A team that was just came out of bankruptcy was created so that it could prop up the F AFL in a mar in the, one of the largest markets in the world. 
you know, what what was it about the New York Jets that had you so attracted and not to the New York Giants, which had just played in one of the most important NFL games in the history of the sport? Well, first of all, because I was six years old in 1958. Oh, well, there you go. I was told I was totally unaware of, of football then, but I've always, uh, early on, realized that I was rooting for underdogs. I'll tell you a story that I remember as a kid. 1960, I was standing in front of my house, and I was eight or nine years old, and there were a bunch of kids, and it was the seventh game of the 1960 World Series. And of course, that's the World Series and that's the game where Bill Mazeroski hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth and the Pirates beat the Yankees, you know, for the World Series. And I remember that after he hit the home run, um, some other kid said to me, hey, the Yankees lost, the Yankees lost, that's great. And I said, why are we rooting against the Yankees? And he said to me, rooting for the Yankees is like rooting for U.S. Steel. No. <laughs> and I like rooting for the Yankees, rooting for, you know, the ball for the New England Patriots is like rooting for Google. Okay? Yes. Uh, and so I, I said, oh, okay, so that's the reason I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to root for the Yankees. And it wasn't until three years later that I really got turned on to baseball. I turned on Channel 9 one afternoon. Uh, they came from behind and beat the Milwaukee Braves 4-3. to I'll never forget a line drive single to left by Ron Hunt that drove in, you know, the tying and the winning run. And I decided that day I was going to become a Met fan. And then six or seven months later, I became a Jet fan when I turned on the radio. And so I, I really wasn't interested. And you know what? You make a great point because the Giants not only were good in 57, excuse me, 58, 59, they were good throughout the mid-50s through the mid-60s. They were just about in the championship game every year. Yeah. Or, or contending for it. And in fact, the first pro football game I ever watched on television were the Giants playing in the 63 NFL championship game against the Bears. You know, the Jets weren't even on television except here or there until 1964 when NBC got the rights to AFL games. Uh -huh. And NBC did something very, very smart. Uh, they were the first network that was trying to turn all their programs into color. And they were the first network to show all their football games in color. They even contacted a lot of the top collegiate prospects that the AFL was trying to sign. And they told those prospects, if you sign with the American Football League, your family will be able to watch you every week and they'll see you play in color. Send it a, 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 a big lure. Yeah, That's... I probably hope them sign a couple of before we dive into the game, I wanted to ask you one quick question. When the New York Jets decided to draft Joe Namath, were you excited about Joe Namath becoming the franchise quarterback of the New York Jets at the time, or did you not know a whole lot about him at the time? No, we in New York, um, and let's see, they signed in 65, so I was 13. Yeah, we knew about Namath, but... We also knew because Sonny Werblin had made it known for several years, he needed to find a star quarterback. When Namath signed, it was a big deal because he had starred in the Orange Bowl game just before he signed his Jets contract. And so there was much, you know, talk about him. But what we didn't really hear about, and the Jets didn't apparently pay any attention to, was the severity of his knee injury that he had suffered the second half of his junior year at Alabama. So the Jets knew probably a year, a year and a half ahead of time that they wanted Joe Namath. And the AFL in those days, if you could sign a player, it didn't really much matter um, who drafted him in the AFL. 
you just try to dicker with them and try to get the negotiating rights to it. Oh, yeah. And the Jets, the Jets did make a trade uh, to get the first pick in the draft. Uh, the owner of the Oilers, Bud Adams, who also wanted to draft Namath, talked to Joe, and Joe said, I'm not interested in playing in Houston. I want to play in New York or Chicago or L.A., and New York is my preference. Yeah. And so he traded him to the Jets, and he, he figured that if he could sign Jerry Rome from Tulsa, Oklahoma, that that would satisfy the fans in Texas. Uh, to make a long story short, Jerry Rome signed with the Dallas Cowboys, and the, only, or the Oilers never got him. And you know what? And you know, and obviously the Jets went on to draft Joe Namath. Joe Namath became, you know, cultural icon and larger-than-life figure. But it's even right in the title is that this team, you know, and you emphasize the word team you know, in, in the cover right there, was probably much better than people realize. I, what I took away from the book was that the Jets, that team that year in 1968, might have been underrated. You know, if you look look back on it, I know the Colts were this machine and were this amazing team and had won all these championships and they were 18-point favorites. But you were able to really go through and, you know, Bob has chapters right from the owner, coaches, the running backs, the receivers, kickers, defensive line, linebackers, all the way through. You were able to, to speak about all these different contributions that, over time, I think Super Bowl three is attached to Joe Namath for many reasons, the guarantee, which we'll get into because you have a chapter about kind of the reactions, the people's reactions to that, too. But one thing I took away from the book, Bob, and I think you did a great job doing it, was you're shining the light on all these other players, these really good players that I don't think people really, even Jet fans nowadays, really know a lot about. I mean- a point in the book, um, and I've continued to make it in trying to promote the book since it came out, is that these 44 other guys who wore uniforms that didn't say Namath on the back of them uh, that year, nonetheless enabled Joe to fulfill his guarantee. I, I have to tell you that two weeks ago during the pregame show that CBS had, they did a so-called tribute to the Super Bowl Jets of 1968. Yes. And in introducing it, I don't know if you guys were watching. Or I did see that. Attention. James Brown read the teleprompter and he read exactly what they told him to say. And they told him to say that Joe Namath, quote, single-handedly beat the Baltimore Colts 50 years ago. Is, is that what he actually said? I went on a Twitter storm. Oh my God. Oh God. Because I thought that that was so incredibly unfair to all these other guys who, frankly, in interview them, uh, said to me, I waited, a lot of them said, I've been waiting 47, 48 years to tell my stories. Nobody ever, nobody ever asked them. And nobody asked them, not because Namath was hogging the publicity, but because everybody just wants to speak to Joe. Well, it's funny you say that because in your book, you know, you said that Sable really wasn't alone in, you know, downgrading the Jets' victory and that a New York Times writer by the name of William Wallace said that Namath proved a single athlete can take a mediocre cast of characters a long way. So that was right after the Super Bowl when the NFL didn't even... It's reading your book, the NFL didn't even want to acknowledge that the AFL won. They were gritting their teeth. They didn't. And in fact... I don't know if it's in the book, but I know the story is true, that as the game of Super Bowl III was, was winding down, Pete Rozelle, who was the commissioner of the National Football League, and who had really been against a merger for the longest time through the 60s, actually realized how good and how lucky it was for pro football that the Jets had won that game. Meanwhile, in the adjoining box, George Hallis. The crusty owner of the Chicago Bears, the owner of another team, and I forget who it was, but again, an older type guy, 
were kicking everything in sight and cursing up a storm and couldn't believe that this was happening, that, that the Colts were going to actually lose this game, you know, to this punk quarterback. Right, and to that point, the guarantee that Joe Namath famously made that uh, he was able to fulfill with a win by the New York Jets that actually put the AFL and NFL on terms where they the NFL had to start acknowledging the AFL. That guarantee was not really recepted well by the Jets team? Well, you have to understand individually. You know, you, as a couple of guys said to me, you know, you don't kick the sleeping bear. Uh, we, Bubank, had spent a lot of time in the two weeks between the AFL championship game and Super Bowl three, telling the Jets that they were going to win, but to keep their mouth shut. Because he said, we don't need to wake the Colts up. The Colts really looked, I, I talked to a half a dozen Colts players for this book. But what I heard uh, across the uh, across the entire grouping was their, their overconfidence that day. Mm. Uh, while the Jets had watched film of the Colts and saw things that they... They, they knew they could do well against Baltimore. They could run, you know, to the left side of the Jets' offense, but offensive line, which they did, that they could throw the ball against the Colts' zone. That the Colts' offense was very vanilla. It was run on the first two downs, then throw a short pass on the third down. The defense felt that the Colts, except for tight end John Mackey, who was kind of all everything in those days, the Colts didn't have a lot of flashy offensive players that were going to, you know, break off and run 80 yards for a touchdown. One of the star linebackers on that team told me that he remembered watching local TV in Miami every night and watching the sports, and the Colts didn't even know the names of most of the Jet players, except for name. Wow. They had that little wow. interest and respect in the Jets. In a, in a way, they're working to the Jets' advantage. You know, b- before we get to the Super Bowl game, the week before that, obviously... Big game versus the Raiders. A month before that was the Heidi game when they lost to the Raiders. So going into that game versus Oakland, now we're going to flash back to 16-year-old Bob Letterer. Did you have confidence going up against Oakland that week? I know the Jets had a great record that year. Um, Oakland, though, tremendous team, defending champs for the AFC. Did you think that week they were going to take a W? I know at the end of the game, Namath came up big. Were you confident going into that week, though? No. <laughs> I have to tell you, I thought that the Jets were very, very vulnerable at cornerback. Their cornerbacks were Johnny Sample, who's a longtime, you know, veteran of the National Football League, who I thought was pretty good. And their other corner, the right corner, was Randy Beverly, who was in his second year. And I don't know, every time I watch the Jets play, the Jet corners, you know, got, got picked on. Well, I didn't realize a couple of things. First of all, Everybody in the American Football League had corners that got picked on because it was a real run-and-gun league. You know, one of, the, one of the great statistics that I picked up in writing the book, the Colts for the all-everything defense that they had in 1968. Now, they gave up far fewer points than the Jets did. But if you looked at the actual yardage that their defense gave up and the Jets gave up, the Jets gave up with less yards than the Colts did. It's only like 70, 80 yards for the whole year. But the Jets were playing against teams who were throwing the football all over the joint. This was high-powered offensive stuff. Yeah, so the context matters, you're right. Uh, they, They were really trying to score a lot of points, as many points as they possibly could, because that was kind of the credo of the league, that you could really attract a lot of attention from the fans and excite them. 
you know, by scoring a lot of points. And so the fact that the Jets had given up, you know, less yards than the Colts had now, you know, 50 years later, which is what I learned, really made an impact on me and helped me understand how good the Jets' defense was. And they had the top defense statistically in the American Football League that year. But no, against the Raiders, I, I didn't have great confidence they would they would win. I hoped they would win. I thought they had an advantage playing in shape because of how cold it was. But they, they also had a, a terrible time beating the Raiders. Yeah. Uh, the Raiders just seemed to have their number. Although, in 1967, in the regular season, Oakland had come to Shea Stadium, and the Jets had put a you know a loss on them. And it was the only game Oakland lost until they played in the Super Bowl against Green Bay. So the Jets showed they had the capability of beating the team. Right. And it was, uh, you know, it was a heck of a football game, you know, that afternoon. I have to admit that I never knew of this song that you put in the back of your book. I never know. I never knew this. And I and I asked. I said, I'm gonna ask Bob right now. You know, we have J E T S Jets Jets Jets. You know, that's our chant, right? But I did not know. And I and I I feel bad that I didn't know this as a Jet fan. You know, I think I know everything about this team, and you just taught me about this part of our culture that I never really knew about. Well, I've heard all the other songs for the Jets, and I think this one kicks the ass of anything else you've ever had. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and that's why, and that's why I put it in the book. And I, in fact, I told the Jets, you know, I had a conversation with them a year and a half ago about what they were going to do for the 50th anniversary. And I told them to have a day out at Giant Stadium, you know, before the season even starts, and bring all the players back, and as they, you know, are introduced individually on the field, show highlights of them, and play that team song back then because that that's what we all were used to back then looking into the book and going over all the different uh players who played you know you're talking about maynard and whatnot what part of the jets championship team besides joe namath for you did you most appreciate uh, my two favorite players were emerson boozer who was kind of the gale sayers of the american football league uh in the mid-60s but he had a he had a devastating knee injury in 1967. In the seventh game of the season, after he had scored 12 or 13, it might even have been 14 touchdowns in the first six and a half game. He was a running back, a halfback, uh, with a very high-kicking style. And he was literally, it, it, when he was a rookie and a set, first and a second-year player, he was impossible to take down by any one player. In fact, even if you had him surrounded, imagine three guys around him. He actually told me that he didn't really go into his elusiveness until they started to get their hands on him. So he was one of my favorites. And the other one, frankly, was Jerry Philbin, who was the left defensive end. Yeah. Jerry Philbin was six foot two and 245 pounds. And he was tough as nails. And he didn't wow you with his individual talent, but he just got the job done. He, he had 19 and a half sacks in 1968. There you go. Philbin. And 
that that was the Jets' record until Gastineau broke it. You know, more than a decade later, he was a terrific all-around football player. So those were my two favorites. But I love George Sauer Jr. He was a if you threw the ball near him, he would catch the ball, and he was a perfectionist. That is what's up. And you know what? I just wanted to tell you, Bob. My favorite part of your whole book is on page 346, and it just. It made me smile because, you know, everyone always dogs are the Jets. The win in Super Bowl three was so special for the AFL particularly that the teams and fans of other teams appreciated what the Jets did. And when you say in your book, Super Bowl three even changed the local fan loyalty up for a day. And perhaps the best example in the AFL cities when the Jets went to go play the uh, the Bills in their first game since Super Bowl three, they traveled to Buffalo and the opponent fans welcomed the visiting team at the airport with resounding cheers saying, thank you, Jets. That That is so cool. And, and, they, and then the cheerleaders rolled out a a sign the next day that said champs as the Jets came out of the tunnel. <laughs> Keith, do you hear this, Keith? The Bills? <laughs> we- I can only dream. I can only dream <laughs> this, this, this kind of this happened. You know, my hate is Look, guys, it'll, it'll never happen again except maybe if the Alliance of American Football <laughs> it's so funny Bob said that I was literally well, before we said we were, I was sitting here going through and I'm like there's no comparative league obviously the NFL is the juggernaut but in theory that's the only thing that could ever happen to, to equate to, to what happened in this game but Bob I wanted to ask you a question we Bubank NFL Hall of Famer my dad's always said to me my dad just like you Bob loves the Jets followed him his entire life and a Titan fan Jet fan the whole nine he always said to me that he thought we Bubank was as a coach he was overlooked ahead of his time and so far as taking notes as, as you have in your book if anyone does um, go through the book and you see the pictures you have in the middle with some of his notes and some of his notes that you use throughout the book which I thought was a great addition to this book which is different than a lot of books you see Weeb Eubanks actual notes of players things from his mind his thoughts um, he was the Colts coach you mentioned the game in 58 and 59 or 58 versus the Giants he was actually coaching the Colts then he won two championships with them won a championship with the Jets do you think in, in the scheme of the NFL he's one of those coaches that's kind of overlooked in the grand scheme of things when they talk about the great coaches all I can tell you is, and it's in the book Kyle Rosenblum fired Weeb at Baltimore and then recommended him to Sonny Werblin to come to New York to become the Jets coach said years later that you could talk about Paul Brown you could talk about Vince Lombardi you could talk about Landry you could talk about Shula but none of them was any better than Weeb Eubank but if you look at Weeb Eubank's overall record I believe he was one or two games over 500 for his entire NFL coaching career but and B-U-T in capital letters. We've had the unfortunate circumstance of twice, first in Baltimore and then with the Jets, walking into a franchise that had nothing. Yep. I mean, the, yeah. the Baltimore Colt franchise in 1953 had just moved up from Dallas. They'd been bought from the ownership in Dallas. Uh, and uh, Carol Rosenblum, is the one who had brought him up to, you know, to Baltimore. He'd hired Weeb away from Paul Brown, much to Paul Brown's uh, regret. He didn't want to give Weeb up. Um, and Weeb started from nothing. If you look at his record, it was almost an identical thing in Baltimore as in New York. The first three years or so, you basically don't see any progress in the record. But 
what you don't see is the development of the players that were there playing for them. And all of a sudden, there's a breakthrough. And for the next two or three years, those guys are hellacious and they are terrific. And again, the Jets and all the other NFL teams did not go raiding NFL rosters to get star players to play for them. Now, that eventually, that did come to pass. That's how the merger you know, came to be because Al Davis, who had taken a temporary job as the AFL commissioner, had, had actually signed John Brody of the 49ers and Roman Gabriel of the Rams and Mike Ditka of the Bears, and he was ready to, to, to actually sign a couple of other players for the American Football League, and that is what finally got the NFL to say, enough, we'll merge with you. Ah. Because the AFL owners had more money than the NFL owners did. You're talking about the guy in, in, in Houston, Bud Adams, an oil man. The, uh, the owner of, of Buffalo was a very, very rich guy, and so were a couple of the other guys. So they could afford to throw money around if they really wanted to. But Weeb, it was one other thing about Weeb, and that is he could coach any position on the field. So offense, defense, special teams. Yeah, I mean, he got. He, he was obviously a great quarterback coach because he developed Unitas and Namath. Yeah, he was he was a terrific kicking kicking coach, as, as you read in the book from Jim Turner. And he went to he went to work for Paul Brown in Cleveland uh, in in the early fifties, which means the late forties. And he expected to uh, like coach offense. And Paul Brown said, "No, I want you to coach the defensive line." Keith, so I, he Keith, learned how to coach the defensive line. Keith, I wonder why Weeb Eubank is not considered higher on the chart of being great <laughs> NFL coaches. If you just heard what he said, he developed Unitas and Namath. I was able to coach all of these. He should be up there. I'm not saying like Lombardi level, but he should be one of the guys that's talked about. He's not really regarded in that realm. Well, but you know what? 50 years later, guys, the Jets don't make as big a deal about that Super Bowl team. It's almost, and I heard this from, well, I heard this, frankly, from from somebody who told me that Joe Namath's um, agent had said this. It was almost like the Jets were embarrassed this past year to honor, you know, the, the Super Bowl team. They had, they had nothing to do with it. Uh, they don't relate to it. All right, so now, Bob, let's let's get into the actual game itself. Super Bowl III, 18-point underdog, New York Jets. They're heading into the game. You're sitting at your house. You're nervous as can possibly be. Now, as the game is going on, you broke this game down to finite detail, all the positions, everything that happened, which was tremendous. The Jets, I think the most overlooked facet of the game when the smoke cleared was the Jets' defense that, like, like you said, was probably overlooked in comparison to the Colts' defense for, you know, many different reasons, but four interceptions that day, they had a fumble recovery. You never hear anybody really talk about that when they bring up Super Bowl three. You know, I know Namath won the MVP, even though you know Snell and Sauer probably had a claim to it when you look at the stat sheet. But at the end of the day, I think the Jets' defense probably played a hand in them winning the game more than anything else. More than Joe Namath, maybe more than Snell, more than Sauer, more than anything else. It seemed like the defense was what really carried them to a W that day. Well, the defense didn't dominate, but they were the original bet but don't break. Yeah. And, and Walt Michaels, who was the defensive coordinator, although they didn't really have a defensive coordinator, and his philosophy, Larry Grantham told me, was that if the other team ran eight or a ten or a twelve-yard, twelve-play drive, that they were going to make a mistake at some point. And when they made the mistake, you had to take advantage of it. Yeah. And, the, and that and that's what, exactly what happened that day. Uh, you know. Now, admittedly, you know, I've talked to Colts fans. And I've gone on on the internet. Facebook and Twitter, whatever, and I've gone into it with Colts fans who told me the Jets were lucky, it couldn't happen again, 
etc. And you know, look, reality, reality is reality. Johnny Unitas was really hurt that year. But the Colts, the Colts have lost only one game with Earl Morrow yeah. going into the Super Bowl. And th- there was just enough. Remember, I said early on that the Jets did some unusual things on offense and defense that threw other teams off. Well, they they did some things, things that would throw you off. The defense played a superb game. Um, they made big plays. Uh, all four of their interceptions, and I'm just trying to get this straight in my mind, all four of their interceptions were in the red zone. Wow. So they let the Colts get down. In fact, guys, you can watch the game. It's on YouTube. NBC has put the entire game with the NFL's blessing on YouTube, and you can watch the whole game, including the commercials, which is a bit of a kick. And and they just made big play after big play. And as a 16-year-old, after Snell scored the, the touchdown to give him a lead, and, and I remember Kurt Gowdy saying, this is the first time an AFL team has been ahead in the Super Bowl. I, I knew that because I'd watched the first two. What a pompous thing to say by that guy. I want to smack that guy right in his mouth for saying that. My adrenaline really started to yeah, exactly. As it should. And I got more and more excited. And there's another story in the book, which I'm sure you guys have seen. It's in my acknowledgments back. But watching the game with me that day was my dad. He was sitting in the back of the room on the couch, and he hated professional sports. And my uncle, his name was Charlie, and he was a big sports fan. He took me to baseball games and to, to other sporting events. And at one point in the second quarter, Jets were putting on a pass rush. Philbin almost got Earl Morrow, and here comes Biggs from the other side, and Morrow kind of leans over, and Biggs goes right over him, and I'm standing up out of my chair going, get him, get him, get him, and my father says, Bobby, what's wrong with you, (laughs) and uncle looked at my dad and said, leave him alone, he's watching something he's going to remember for the rest of his life. Yeah, man, that's what's up, yeah, and that's right, funny, my father... Said the same thing to me a few times uh, when I was young. Jets were playing against the Broncos in the AFC Championship game. And uh, when we went up in the first or second half, before in the second quarter, and um, I was just flipping out. And my mom was like, Michael, calm down. And my, you know, my father was pretty much telling her, hey, let him have his moment. This is his time. Now it did. We didn't. End up, we didn't end up going to the Super Bowl. But uh, you know, I will always have that team. That '98 team was. Yeah, you know, when you're when you're that age, I was 16. Now, how old were you when the Jets played Denver? Uh, I was 17, so I was very close to your age, I mean, right, right around your age. So you're so impressionable at that age that everything is bigger than it actually is, and it's just that much more memorable. Right, and 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 for my and from my perspective. I know you said you you know you started watching them or you became a fan you know when you were a young teenager. I w- like I was telling you earlier. I've been a Jet fan since I was a little little boy. When they were, they were the green team, I liked them because they were green. That's the only reason why I liked them. And I, literally, I would I mean I got picked on in, in in first grade. They took my Jet lunchbox and threw it and said, "Oh yeah, they they suck." And I have those memories, you know. So this was the first time at seventeen that my team was good ever. You know, like my whole life, right? And so it was very special to me. As Adam West said as Batman in the Batman series in the 60s, poor deluded child. <laughs> now getting back to the game, Super Bowl three. Don Maynard, obviously, one of the best receivers of all time. One of the best receivers ever in the AFL. As you mentioned, played in the NFL too. Tons of records. He still has almost every single... I think he does have every Jet receiving record still. Um, But that game... 
Super Bowl three, no catches for Don Maynard. The guy that carried the team was George Sauer. Now, he, George Sauer led the AFL in catches 67, 68. Not a player Jet fans, I think, my age know a lot about. Tell, tell the listeners about George Sauer, someone who retired from the NFL in early age. Kind of a different cat, went on to do different things. But he pretty much offensively, him and Snell, now running the ball, him receiving the ball, um, along with Joe Namath. Those are the guys that pretty much carried the offense in that game. Well, well Maynard, you know, Maynard was the decoy that day. Not, not so much by design, but because he wasn't 100%. Colts the entire year had, um, in fact, even in previous years, had run this deep zone defense, and nobody could get behind their safety. Bobby Boyd, who was the left corner for Baltimore and who would line up against Maynard, and here's another thing you find out when you read this stuff years later. Bobby Boyd got timed at 5-0 in the 40. He was all NFL. Yeah. And I and I met Maynard for the first time the weekend of the, the 50th anniversary celebration. And I said to him, did you know how slow Bobby Boyd really was? And he looked at me and I said, you know, he was timed at 5-0. And he looked at me and he said, I, you know, I didn't know how fast or slow he was, but I watched the film and I knew I could run right by him. And he ran by Boyd and that was expected. The Colts had the deep zone. Their safety was going to pick him up. And he ran by their safety. And nobody the entire year had gotten gotten open, you know, against their deep zone. And Joe threw him a long one in the first quarter. And even at not even 100%, it just ticked off Maynard's fingertips. He just missed making the catch. In fact, he came back to the sidelines later. And he apologized to Joe for not being able to catch him. The Colts shifted their zone, and they double-teamed Maynard everywhere he went because they knew that there was something wrong, but they couldn't tell, you know, how unhealthy or healthy he really was, and they couldn't take the chance on him connecting with Namath and breaking along with him. That's why it was just sour all day. That makes sense. Yeah, that's why they threw the sour all day, and he was one-on-one against Lenny Lyles, who apparently had had strep throat that week and wasn't feeling 100%. But I got to tell you, I had watched the Colts play during the season, and even as a 16-year-old kid, I said to people before the Super Bowl, they can throw on Lenny Lyles all day long. He just, I just think he's hes primed to be picked on. And I didn't think the Jets were going to win, but I thought they were going to be able to put up enough points to make it respectable. So we know Earl Morrow, he throws three picks in the game. He gets yanked. In walks Johnny Unitas. Now, we talked about it in the book, but you as a fan, you knew about, you know, John, he's Johnny U. You know, he, he's somebody that was a mythical figure in the world of quarterbacks, especially back then in the late 60s. What, what was your feeling? Did nerve-wracking to see him throwing the ball around? I know he threw an interception, but it's still Johnny Unitas. Did that make you feel like the Colts might be able to move the ball more on the Jets' defense? Or did you still think the Jets were going to be able to have their number when he came in? Well, when he first came in, I had the same reaction that the Jet players told me they had, which was a big gulp. Johnny Unitas, but Johnny Unitas had been hurt the whole. He only started one game. He had really hurt his elbow uh, in uh, training camp, and in fact, Earl Morrow was in training camp with the New York Giants, and they traded him to the Baltimore Colts for basically a bag of balls. So Earl Morrow, who was he was not a journeyman. He was a he was a journeyman backup quarterback, very serviceable, but he was not a star. You know, I mean, he could go in and he could play, but he wasn't going to set the world on fire. But he set the world on fire that year. So, yes, I was concerned about Unitas. But first series he was in, three and out. Second series he was in, three and out. And, in fact, the passes he 
room were dying quails. And I remember Aldi Regattas doing color and, and Kyle Rook doing color for NBC that day saying, United just doesn't have zip on the ball at all. Now, yeah, they had the one drive where they scored at the very end of the game. Again, to the Jets' defense's credit, they had first and goal from the four against the Jet defense. It took three tries until they finally punched it in. And it ate up so much time off the clock that it really, I mean, the Colts, they, they just shot themselves. They couldn't, they couldn't push the ball through. It took them like two minutes of playing time, the clock running. And by the time they were done, there was less than three games and three minutes left in the game. Now, do you think when the game ended, obviously, giant upset, Joe Namath gets the MVP of the game. Now, Joe didn't necessarily have the greatest game in the world, but he had the guarantee. Do you think that and his you know, kind of his uh, his stature culturally in, in the world at that time. Is that, do you think, the reason he won the MVP? Because could have easily given it to Matt Snell. You could have easily given it to Sauer on uh, one of those two guys. Do you think Joe Namath basically won it just off his, um, how popular he was and the guarantee? you think that kind of played into why he won the MVP? Well, as we, always, as we still see today, the quarterback usually gets the MVP of any kind of a game. Namath got it, I think. Because he did, he did make the guarantee, and everybody was aware of it. Although it wasn't as big a deal in many quarters as it later became. But the guarantee was one thing, and he, as I mentioned in the book, he was a great field general that day in, in the mode of Bart Starr, who was Green Bay's quarterback, who just ran a very, very effective and efficient offense. And he also threw the ball superbly, and he really played, I think, the best game of his career that afternoon. And I've heard Namath say that in watching the game, and he hasn't watched it that many times, he said, you know what, I didn't really have a very good game that day. Uh, but he wasn't there to gunsling. He was there to control the offense and keep the Colt defense on the field and wear them down. I uh, keep the Jets defense on the sideline as much as they could so they wouldn't get worn down by Baltimore's offense. I didn't really have an argument that day. Again, I was a kid, but I had no argument about Namath getting the MVP. There were rumors that Matt was, was upset about not getting it. Matt told me himself he really was not upset at all that day. I think the greatest individual efforts of that day was what Dave Herman did in going one-on-one -on -one against Bubba Smith. He was playing left uh, left defensive end against uh, Herman, who had been moved to right tackle for the last two games of the season, the Oakland game and Shea and this game. Uh, and he was outweighed by Bubba by about 40 pounds, and he was about three inches shorter than Bubba. And Bubba had a move that he loved to make which is to basically grab the offensive tackle by the shoulder pads and throw them out of the way. <laughs> and, and he never was able to do it to, to Dave Herman. And we have in the book the reason why that he got special coaching from Jeff Richards, who had played with Bubba at Michigan State, precisely told Dave how to attack Bubba and keep him off balance. And it worked the entire game. He got... He got to Joe once the entire football. Wow. Now, did you ever hear, have you heard Bubba Smith's version of Super Bowl Three, where he said that he thinks the game was fixed, Bob? Have you heard this? I, 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 read, I read it. I talked to Matt about it because he and, and Matt Snell became somewhat buddies because they did a light beer commercial together. And uh, Matt told me to just sour grapes. And Matt, in fact, they were doing they were doing the, the, the Bill of Light commercial and Matt told me, kept taking his Super Bowl ring off and saying, here Bubba, here Bubba, you can put it on. <laughs> <laughs> Better watch himself. High talent from Police Academy will put you through a table. Yeah. I know, he, what his, basically his, his thought process was that it must have been fixed because 
Obviously, they wanted an AFL team to win so they could be the merger, so they could make all of this money. The amount of things that would have to be in place would have to occur. We won't, you know what? It is sour grapes. We won't even get into that part. The aftermath of Super Bowl three, when the smoke cleared, you know. But prior to that, the AFL is the little brother. Uh, the, the, is not as good. The talent's not as good. You know, the Jets win the Super Bowl. Immediately after that, as Mike mentioned earlier, some of the writers didn't seem even some of the, even as the game went on, the announcers, as you mentioned. And the writers afterwards, it's almost like they didn't even want to, they almost didn't even want to give the Jets credit to a degree after they won the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know, uh, it was mostly the, the NFL owners. They didn't believe what they had seen. And, you know, Baltimore made mistakes that day, clearly, when you throw that many interceptions, when you, when you have a major fumble that stops your momentum before it ever gets started to begin the second half. But Billy Joe, who was a third string fullback, for the Jets, uh, but who's after his playing career went on to be a really big time coach in black college football. He's the second winningest black college football coach of all time behind Grambling Eddie Robbins. Uh, told me that, you know, when a team makes mistakes like that, you can say, well, you know, the other team made mistakes. But winning teams take advantage of those mistakes. Yes. Um, and, and that's and that's preparation and and basically being ready mentally and physically to take advantage of that. And Beverly made a couple of real nice interceptions that day, and, and so did uh, Sample. He made an interception, a key one off Willie Richardson. And Jim Hudson, you know, made the interception that basically ended the first half. And, and that play, that was the flea flicker that everybody talks about. Yep. And if Baltimore had, had connected on it, would have sent them to the locker room in a 7-7 tie. You could tell through the book, Bob, you could tell how much that day meant to you just by how passionate you were, how much detail you went into about just that one specific game. And it is a game, the annals of American sports, you know, it's one of the more memorable games. It's still the biggest upset in the history of the Super Bowl. It's a game, obviously, all these years later, 50 years later, with Jet fans like myself, who've never seen us win a Super Bowl. It's still kind of that legendary day. And what this book did, and what you did a great job with Bob is kind of illustrating all the other guys as I mentioned earlier that played into it it wasn't just Joe Namath it was a team effort and the the Jets as a whole that that year they were the best team and that's why they won the Super Bowl yeah you know they had aside from Joe they had 10 guys the week after the Super Bowl who were were playing in the American Football League All-Star game so they had 11 guys on the East team well you only have 22 guys on the field at any one time yeah so they basically fielded you know technically you know, a third of the players who are on the bench, but half the guys, you know, who actually, you know, were, were on the field and playing. Um, and, and the reception that they got from all the AFL players that day for what they had done the week before, and I talked to a number of the players who were at the, at the Orange Bowl that day, talked to them about what they felt as they were sitting in the stands and watching this all come to pass. Lenny Dawson of Kansas City has been quoted many times over, basically in the beginning of the, of the game, getting Bronx cheers from all the NFL fans around him. And as the game wore on, he just said, starting to stand up and say, hey, you know, these AFL guys, they don't seem that bad, do they? The situation kind of got heavy on me. Hey, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. And I want to once again give a shout out and a thank you to Bob for taking some time to visit with us this week. The book is absolutely tremendous. Beyond Broadway Joe, available at all of your local book retailers or online. Once again, Bob, thank you very much. He will be back for part two of his interview next week. where We will delve into the current state of the New York Jets, Sam Darnold, 
coaching decisions, the draft, all of those good things. Until then, on behalf of Bob, my co-host, Michael Lagaris, the big stinking Wookiee, Nicholas Kronk, I am Keith Farrell. Get back at you next week, everybody. Peace out. Are you ready? The New York Jets can beat anybody in the world, and I think we're going to win next Sunday. The New York Jets. I think Jeff fans. Jeff fans. Bird, ready, bird. Very passionate. Bird, ready, bird. Thank you, all you fans. They got their guy. Darnold falling to the Jets. Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold. That's such an upside. I think Jeff fans. Very passionate. Brady sucks. Don't be the sucks. I want a number leader.